Good evening. It's good to be amongst you again this evening. If you'd like to be turning in your Bibles to Revelation 2, as David mentioned, we are studying the seven churches in Asia that we find here in the chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. So tonight we're going to talk about the church in Pergamum. We have discussed the church in Ephesus. We have discussed the church in Smyrna. So the next church that comes in verses 12, beginning, is the church in Pergamum. So that's what we are doing. We're making our way, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a brief look at each one of these churches. And our goal here is not to um, go into great depth on the message that is to each church, but rather to look at the pattern um, that each one of these messages follows um, to talk a little bit about the city and the church, it, the, what information we have about the particular church there. And then from that, draw out um, a few things along the way about Revelation and to look at what it means to us today, um, what these messages, um, how they apply to us today in our everyday lives as, as we are in this present time. So, <clears throat> this is, um, David's going to grab the lights. Um, our projector's a little weak, so we're going to turn the lights off. Um, please try to stay awake. I know that late in the day <laughs> with the lights off, but I'll try to be as engaging as I can be. If you can see this, this little dot right over here is the Isle of Patmos. This is where John is in exile when he writes um, the book of Revelation. And as we mentioned, we have looked at the, the message to Ephesus and to Smyrna. Now we make our way up to Pergamum. And just for those who haven't been here, um, I've made the point about, from a geographical standpoint, we, we, we can see how this, this is taking place. The message is coming from Patmos um, to Ephesus. Um, and then geographically, following the, uh, as you can see there, a pattern. It goes from Ephesus to Smyrna up to Pergamum, the Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and back down to Laodicea. So if you had a message that was going, traveling around, it would make sense that it would follow that pattern. And that's what we see here um, with these messages to these churches. Um, we've also made the point about the description of Jesus and how that plays a part in the messages that are going out to each one of these churches. Uh, for instance, in chapter 1, Jesus says, described, John here in, in the vision that he sees, he sees in the middle of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, and in his right hand held the seven stars. Well, when we get to verse 1 of chapter 2, um, and looking at the message to Ephesus, Jesus describes himself this way, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So each one of those, um, each description, each message to the church has this description of Jesus that goes back to the description that was, big, that was given in the beginning in chapter 1. So we see that pattern over and over again. I am the first and the last, the, the living one, the one who was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore from verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. And then in the, the message to Smyrna says the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. And we've looked at how these descriptions um, 
aid in us understanding what the message is to each one of these churches. So today, in Pergamum, um, from verse 16, the second part of verse 16 in chapter 1, John describes Jesus as this one, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So when we look in the message uh, to Pergamum, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that's going to come into play a little bit later as we, as we look a little bit deeper into the message. So this is a pattern. We, this is um, almost like a primer course for the study of the book of Revelation. Um, we see patterns. We see numbers. Um, <clears throat> all these things within the messages to these seven churches. We see some allusions to things. And that will play a very much more in-depth part in the the complete uh, revelation when we get past chapter 3. But as for now, it helps us to kind of understand the style in which the book of Revelation is written. I wanted to take just a moment to talk about the angel of the church. If you notice in each one of these lessons, uh, each one of these messages, it says there, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So there's lots of speculation about this angel. Um, so I wanted just to address this and talk about it a little bit um, as we go through. What is, um, or who is this angel of the church? And I wanted to give, this is from Homer Haley's commentary on the book of Revelation, some different positions that scholars and men have come about about who this angel is. And I wanted just to present these to you, just to, to show you what what is out there. Uh, some have suggested that it's men sent to John to inquire of his state. Now again, these are, these are positions that men have come up with um, based on the text, based on research, and, and that kind of thing. Some have suggested that angels um, who stand for and are responsible for the church's spiritual state. Some have suggested it's the chief pastor or bishop, or the entire eldership of each one of these churches. Some have suggested that it's the power, character, and the history and the life of the church. So when we talk about the angel of the church, that's what it is, the character, the history, and the life of the church. Some have suggested that it's the heavenly counterpart of the churches, or the spiritual counterpart of human individuals. Some have suggested that it's a symbolic representation in which the active, as distinguished from the passive, life of the church finds expression. You have to read that one a couple of times to kind of get what that says. Symbolic representation in which the active life of the church finds expression rather than the passive. And then the last one is the spiritual character, inward state, or prevailing spirit of the church itself. So there's lots, and if you read another commentary, you probably find another half dozen or so um, of men trying to figure out what this angel of the church is. I'm going to give you some of my personal thoughts about this, and then um, I'll, I'll let you continue in your thoughts and your studies about it as well. First of all, I wanted to talk about some things that I reject out of this list. And the first one I reject there is the, is the first one, men sent to John to inquire of his state. 
I don't believe that's what this angel is or who this angel is. We don't see, we see men who take on, or angels who take on the form of men, but I don't know of any place in scripture where men take on the form of an angel. Now, I may be wrong, uh, and please correct me if I am, but I don't see that in scripture. I see angels as they are described from the Hebrew writer, ministering spirits sent out to, to aid man in his salvation. So I don't necessarily agree with that. The next thing I don't agree with is the chief pastor, bishop, or entire eldership. One, because there, there is no chief pastor. Um, an eldership is a, is a plurality of elders in a, in a certain congregation. There's no other office, earthly office, that we're given other than elders and deacons, um, minister, saints. Those are the, what make up the church. We don't see it anywhere else in scripture about an angel or a chief pastor. So I don't necessarily agree with that either. Um, the spiritual counterpart of human individuals, I'm not sure that I agree with that either. Um, I just don't have the right mindset, I guess, to, to think that that's, that's the case. Um, this kind of speaks into the guardian angel kind of idea. And I'm not sure that I go along with that either. So those are the ones I kind of reject out of hand. Now, where I see it, and, and I'm currently studying the book of Revelation, so my, my studies, where I am at this point in my life and my studies in the book of Revelation, is maybe some kind of a blending of, of these things. Uh, we're not told um, who this is other than it's an angel. Um, we see... The scene that is set for us, we see Jesus among the golden lampstands. So this scene is taking place, from what we understand, in heaven. So these angels, so to me, if he's writing and says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, I believe that that's going on, that's a scene in heaven. This is what John is seeing. And this is what the, Jesus is telling him to write. And he's also writing to these angels. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, and then when it comes to the end, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what it says in each one of these. To the angel of the church write, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, um, I think there is some kind of a counterpart, a heavenly counterpart, this, 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 what is what this is alluding to. Um, if you say that the, uh, each church has an angel in heaven, a representation you know, that may be the case. Um, like I said, we're just not told. But I see this as an angel in heaven. There's an angel of each one of these churches. So that must tell us something about every church. And maybe every church has an angel. Um, we just don't know. Symbolic representation in which the active life of the church finds expression. Um, the spirit, spiritual character, inward state, a prevailing spirit of the church itself. That's kind of somewhere along in my, in my thinking. I don't hold to any one of these 100%. Um, but just, I see it as a scene in heaven. Here's an angel of the church. There's a responsibility. There's a representation uh, in heaven of an earthly church. So we'll leave it at that. I encourage you to, to, to study on your own. Um, and see where you might land on this. 
But what's important is to understand that this is a message that's going out to each one of these churches. Um, as you study in the book of Revelation, you, you'll, you'll see that there's things that are happening in heaven um, that describe events that are happening in the world. And so John is, is explaining the things that he is seeing in the book of Revelation. So there's a lot of symbology, um, there's a lot of illusion and allegory, all of these things um, in the book of Revelation. So we shouldn't put too much stock in trying to figure out exactly who that angel is. There's symbology that's at play here. Okay. I wanted to mention that about the angel of the church. Let's talk a little bit about the ancient city of Pergamum. Uh, it's about 30 miles um, north of Smyrna. We, we saw that uh, Smyrna was about 40 miles north of Ephesus. So we're kind of working our way up the coast. Um, it was briefly the capital of the Roman province of Asia before that capital ship was transferred to Ephesus. Um, so it had some stature in this province, in the, uh, the Roman um, in the Roman world. We talked about last week how Smyrna was very loyal to Rome. Not so much with, uh, with Pergamum. They had some battles and some infighting and some things that were going on because of that. They weren't quite as loyal to Rome as Smyrna was. Um, however, they would benefit from large building projects under Hadrian. I don't know if you remember about Hadrian, the emperor uh, of Rome. He was a great builder. You might have heard of Hadrian's Wall, which is in, actually in uh, England. That was kind of the northern boundary of the Roman Empire at that time. But Hadrian built a lot of things. And there was a lot of things, as we'll see here in just a moment, that were built in Pergamum. It had a library of some 200,000 volumes, which was the largest library outside of Alexandria, the library in Alexandria in Egypt, which, by the way, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it had a very large library uh, here in Pergamum. Tells you a little bit about, you know, who these people were, knowledgeable, scholarly. Um, and this would also be the, uh, a major seat of Christianity in the second century. So we see this um, Christianity kind of um, blossom here in this city, despite what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Um, it became kind of a a big city, a big um, a seat for Christianity later on from the time of, of, of John's writing here. But it would later on become that. Just a couple of images. Um, I hope you can see this. This is the altar that was in Pergamum. There's actually, a, um, they rebuilt this. I think it's in Germany. I think there's a, a museum for the whole city of Pergamum in Germany, and they rebuilt part of this altar here. This is, whole thing is the Acropolis. Um, you'll see all sorts of temples, um, large structures and buildings all throughout here. This is kind of the entrance into this courtyard here where the, the altar was. And you don't know if you can see that, but there's an altar right there in the center with smoke going up from it. This is where uh, pagan rituals would take place, um, pagan offerings. Um, so this, you can see this is a pretty large complex of buildings. Um, this is the amphitheater. Many Roman cities had amphitheaters. Uh, in their towns, um, and Pergamum was no exception. I don't know if you can see that or not, but that little white thing right there is a sign, and then standing next to that is a man. So it kind of gives you the scale of that particular structure. 
the man is standing, he's just that big, basically the, the size of my red dot there. So you can tell what scale, this goes all the way down to here, the stage will be all the way here. So very large structure there. This is a model um, of the city. This is the altar that we just looked at a second ago. There's the amphitheater right there. This is all the part of the Acropolis uh, complex. Again, all these buildings, all these temples to, to gods and the pagan worship that was going on there. Um, this was a large, long colonnade right here. And if you see in this next picture, that's that colonnade right there because you see the amphitheater there and there's that large colonnade. You see from this picture how it was set up on top of a hill, way up here on top of a hill. All these buildings and everything were on top of this hill. Some of the ruins are still parts of it there, especially the amphitheater there, which you can see. So this was taken from a distance from there. Let's talk a little bit about the church in Pergamon. We don't know a whole lot about it, um, as we didn't know a whole lot about the church in Smyrna. Um, but what we do understand um, that the church was located in a city that was filled with idol and emperor worship. Um, Jesus is going to refer to Satan's throne. And this speaks to some of the, the reason why he said that. All those buildings, all those things that were there for idol worship and pagan worship. Um, the church here was located in a city that was full of that. Idol and emperor worship. Uh, in Smyrna... Um, we saw that there was oppression that came by the hands of the Jews. Well, here we see it, that it seems to be coming from the pagan sources, from worldly sources, from emperor worship, rather than coming from um, the Jews. The persecution that they would undergo would be from the Romans, the citizens themselves. Um, we have in here the martyrdom of Antipas. We don't know anything other than what's written here in verse 13 about Antipas, but, but our Lord mentions him about the martyrdom of Antipas. So obviously there was persecution going on. Um, That's clearly evident from, from what Jesus says here. Um, but despite all that, the Christians were managing to hold fast. Uh, he commends them on being able to, to withstand this oppression and to hold fast as part of his con, uh, commendation of them. So let's read here, um, verses 12 through 17, the, the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, beginning verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who are in the same way hold the teaching to the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly and will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So as we've talked about 
uh, in the past, each one of these letters, each one of these messages follows a certain pattern. And the first thing in each one of these is the salutation. So we have that here in, uh, in verse 12. To the angel of the per- church in Pergamum, right? This is what we just discussed. The second thing we see typically in each one of these messages is Jesus' self-designation, which we've talked about as well. And Jesus d- d- designates himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We're going to talk about that a little bit more because he mentions it again. So we'll get more context on that. The next thing we see in these messages is the, the commendation of good. What is it that, that these churches are doing good? So for the church here in Pergamum, he says he knows what's going on. He knows the works that are being done. He knows that they dwell near Satan's throne. He knows that these things are taking place. He knows the persecution that, you're under, that they're undergoing. But they were holding fast. They were being faithful. And they did not deny our Lord. Even though the things that were going on, even though the martyrdom of this Antipas, these things were taking place. Amongst all this persecution, they were still holding fast. And still maintaining the faith. But, uh, as we see with most cases of of these churches, there's something going on here that Jesus condemns them for. So in the case of Pergamum, he says there are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and to the Nicolaitans. Now we don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. We know that they're mentioned also over in um, verse 6 of chapter 2 when dealing with the church in Ephesus. It says there that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These are the only two references we have to this group. Some have said that they were like the Gnostics, um, that they were those who... Um, more involved in the earthly um, worship, um, those kind of things, pagan kind of worship, but we don't really know. Uh, We do know more about Balaam, um, and he says here, but I have a few things against you because you have some there that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. If you remember the story of Balaam, Balak goes to Balaam, he wants him to curse Israel. Um, so Balaam is kind of going back and forth um, with the cursing and not. Um, that's when he has the incident with his donkey, or his donkey talks to him. But what he's saying here, there's three things that he points out here. Who, keep teaching, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. The things there that he points out um, is what he has against these amongst the ones in Pergamum um, that were holding to some false doctrine. Not all, not all the people, because he has, he has some, some commendation of the things that they were doing well. But there are some that are holding to these false teachings. Stumbling blocks, those who are, are trying to lead others astray, um, those who... Um, Eat things sacrificed to idols. Here's the, here's the idol worship, the pagan worship that, that's filtering in, that they had so much trouble with, even the children of Israel, still having trouble with it, uh, even in the writing of this, the time of the writing of this. And to eat things sacrificed to idols um, and to commit acts of immorality, these things that are going on along with the idol worship that was so prevalent. Um, so these are the things that, that the Lord has against these here in Pergamum. 
Yes, you are holding fast, but there's some that are not. Which leads to um, the next thing, the counsel, the warning, and the exhortation. What is it that Jesus warns them of if they don't change from what they're doing? And this he says, repent, or I am coming quickly to make war with the sword of my mouth. Now, isn't this interesting the way that this all comes together? Jesus is described... um, when John sees him there, it says, out of his mouth comes um, a sharp two-edged sword. And so when Jesus describes himself, he says, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. So in the condemnation, he says, repent or I'm coming quickly to make war with the sword of my mouth. And we know what that is. That's the word of God. The Hebrew writer tells us that um, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. We understand that that's what it is. So when he's coming to correct these, what's he going to correct them with? The Word of God. Important to understand that. We'll make a little application with that as well. So as Jesus is describing himself, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, he says, when I come to make war with these, I'm going to do it with God's Word. The promise of overcoming This is in the pattern as well. What is the promise to these who overcome the things that Jesus has just condemned them for? For in Pergamum, it says, You will receive the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. We're going to talk about that a little bit um, towards our conclusion. But this is the promise um, for these here in Pergamum. If these overcome, if these overcome the the difficult times that that are befalling them, this is the reward. Hidden manna, the white stone with a new name. And again, um, what we have here, the invitation to hear the message given. Each time we see this, we see, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a, this is a call to listen. Here's the message that I'm writing to the church, to the angel of the church. Here's the message. Now listen to it. He who has an ear, let him hear. So we see this pattern again. So as we um, wrap up, as we've been doing with each one of these, um, what's the message to us from Pergamum? Why do we have this recorded for us? What, what's, what benefit is it of us, to us? And the benefit is great. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit would not have seen it necessary to include this in our Bible. Understand that we must hold fast to the Lord's faith without wavering. That's always been the case. God has always wanted his children to hold to the faith. Even in the times of of Balaam, even in the times uh, of persecution, even in the times where um, they were on the cusp of being taken into, into captivity, the Lord sending them prophets to plead with them. He's always wanted his children to hold to the faith. The message is the same to us as it is to these in Pergamum. To hold fast. To hold fast to that faith that we have. Also, we must reject false teaching from within and without. When we identify and see false teaching among ourselves as this church was experiencing, those who were holding to the teachings of Balaam, those who were holding the teachings of the Nicolaitans, when we spot that within our own ranks, we need to do something about it. Remember, because what Jesus said, I'm coming to make war with them, with the word of God. 
So when we see that, we have the same responsibility. And those who come from, from the outside and try to influence us as well. We must reject false teaching and be ready to do so. The word of God, the two-edged sword, is what he will use to make war. And that is still the standard. It hasn't changed. The word of God is the, is the sword. And Jesus says, I will make war with this sword. This is what he's talking about, the word of God. So when we are fighting the false teachers, uh, when we are dealing with false doctrine, we have to go to the word of God and make sure we're using that same standard. And we have the promise of the hidden manna. Um, look over in John chapter 6. Let's make this point. What does he mean by hidden manna? Remember what Jesus says about himself? Here in John chapter 36, uh, John 6 and verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When we're talking about the, the hidden manna, when Jesus talks about hidden manna, we see a reference to the manna that came down out of heaven to feed the children of Israel. So we come to the New Testament, and Jesus here talking about, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the one who comes down out of heaven. To give life. Now, of course, there's some misunderstanding about what's being said here. They're thinking it's physical food, but it's not. It's spiritual. Jesus is talking about spiritual things. This is the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. As these in Pergamum were blessed, um, those who overcame would be blessed. So too are we. We have this promise it's given to us of Jesus Christ, the bread of life coming down out of heaven. So we have that same kind of spiritual blessing in Jesus. The white stone, the white um, in Revelation and other places in Scripture represents purity. Um, so when we look at the color that's given white, uh, having our robes um, washed to be white in the blood of the Lamb, the white is the purity. So we're given this white stone with a message with a new name on it. We look at a passage like Isaiah 62 and verse 2. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. These are those passages that look forward to the kingdom. There's other passages similar to this in Isaiah, talking about this new name that we will have. A new name that the mouth of the Lord will designate. So when he talks about having that white stone, that pure stone with a name on it, with a new name, that's our new name. That's the name that we have when we become Christians. We have a new life in Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. We mention, I mention often about Romans 6, being baptized, coming up out of that water, a new creature a new life in Christ. So what we get from the message of, at, at Pergamum is that there were things that they had to overcome. There were um, problems. They were in the seat of uh, 
Satan. Satan's throne is there, is what our Lord says. It's idol worship, it's emperor worship, all these things that were going on, martyrdom. Yet Jesus says, I know that you're holding fast. I know that you are. I know that you're keeping the faith. But there's also some among you that are not. Some that are teaching false doctrine. And those have to be dealt with. And Jesus says, I'm coming to deal with them, and I'm going to use the word of God to deal with them. And the promise to them is those who overcome is that life in the kingdom. And that's the same promise that we have today. If you are subject to the gospel call, if you have needs of this congregation that um, are of a public nature, now is the time to come forward and make that right as we stand and sing to encourage you.